1: The dust has settled after the first Republican primary debate of the 2024 presidential election. Though former President Trump was absent from the debate stage, he was still part of the conversation after surrendering to the Fulton County Jail on charges related to his alleged efforts to overturn the election results in the state of Georgia in 2020. The former president's arraignment date is set for September 6th in Georgia. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing. Next week, Congress returns from their August recess with some large obstacles to tackle as they begin the rush to fund the government and to try to avoid a federal government shutdown. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is facing criticism from inside his own party, and mounting pressure to attempt an impeachment of President Biden. Some Freedom Caucus members are downplaying the consequences of a government shutdown. Speaker McCarthy warns that a shutdown could negatively impact any impeachment investigation. For a conversation on this and more, we bring in our panel, nationally syndicated radio host, Democratic strategist and Fox News contributor, Leslie Marshall, chief political correspondent for The Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, Byron York, and Fox News senior congressional correspondent, Chad Perkram. Chad, we'll start with you. Congress coming back uh, to basically another fiscal cliff.
3: Yeah, they have to fund the government by the 1st of October. Uh, They don't have much track. Uh, The Senate isn't going to come back until the 5th, the House on the 12th. Here's where the real dynamic is. Uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy knows that the only way to avoid a government shutdown is to pass an interim spending bill. What does an interim spending bill do? It simply renews all the old funding. Well, the Freedom Caucus, and many conservatives don't like that because they view that as money they don't want to spend. They're like, we want cuts. They want something that cuts right out of the blocks. Uh, And the other thing for Kevin McCarthy here is the way to avoid a government shutdown is passing that interim spending bill, a Band-Aid bill, for a short period of time, is that you do it with a coalition of Democrats and Republicans. Why is that dangerous for McCarthy? Well, what did he do back in the spring on the debt ceiling? He passed a bill with more Democratic votes than Republican votes uh, to avoid, uh, you know, hitting the debt ceiling. Uh, Republicans, especially these conservatives, they've held that against him. So they've written these spending bills in the House below the agreed to level in the debt ceiling pact with President Biden and the Democrats. And the problem that they've run into in the House, you know, they can't you know, really blame this on Democrats right now because they've only passed one of the 12 bills. The reason the problem exists in the House passing the bills is because they've written the levels so low it makes the Freedom Caucus dance, but you need a lot of moderate and and kind of mainstream Republicans to vote for those bills and they don't have the votes. As I say, it always comes down to the math and they don't have the the votes even in the House to pass their own bills. And so that's why they're going to have to do an interim uh, funding bill if they're going to avoid a government shutdown. And again, the road to do that is through the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah. And it just gets ugly for Republicans who ran on straightening things out and getting the House in order. Leslie, you know, Democrats are probably licking their chops at the prospects that this all falls through.
0: Well, I, I you know, I wouldn't say whenever there's a <laughs> the possibility of a shutdown licking chops. But, you know, you know, Democrats on my side here certainly know who's in control of the House. It's Republicans who gets blamed if, you know, anything, you know, goes awry, um, even though we usually see in the 11th hour some kind of a stopgap measure. Um, You know, but to expound on this just a bit, you know, the indictments against the former president have certainly, I think, spurred his allies in Uh, the House, Republicans that are trying to use the upcoming government funding that deadline of September 30th as a leverage to undermine the prosecutions, even though a government shutdown would not halt the criminal proceedings against the former president. So I think there's a lot more going on here.
1: It's said to be um, a part of government that is essential.
0: Right. It, it, no, no, ex- exactly. And, and here and here is the issue. And Democrats have faced this as well. Whenever you're looking at a shutdown looming, the party in power is going to get blamed. The party in power in the House are the Republicans. And, you know, the, the Republicans have a lot of promises they've made out there, whether it's impeachment or, as you mentioned, Brett, to change things and to do things better and more smoothly than Democrats have. That's why, you know, people voted them to be in power. And and Kevin McCarthy has a a very delicate dance here because he does have fragmentation within his party and within that House.
1: Byron, what we have seen from Speaker McCarthy is he does kind of a hat tip to the right side of his party. He does something that makes them happy in some way, shape or form. Uh, But then seems to corral the cats um, to get them on bills, at least so far.
2: Well, you're right. Uh, There were some people who predicted he wouldn't make it this long as as Speaker of the House. Uh, But, uh, you know, what's going on right now is that basically everything that conservative Republicans talked about when they grudgingly Made uh, McCarthy Speaker of the House in January. It's not virtually everything that we're talking about is not happening um, in this process now, and is and is not going to happen because their majority is so small. The House Republicans' majority is so small, and then everything has to be passed with the the Senate as well. So uh, the House Republicans are seeking more spending cuts than they're, than they're going to be able to get. Uh, The Senate just wants to pass this. They do not want um, a government shutdown, and that certainly includes the Senate Republicans as well. And we're going to end up exactly where all those conservatives, Republicans said they simply would not go again, which is another stopgap spending measure that keeps the current levels of spending going into the future.
1: Which is pretty remarkable if it happens that way, Chad. Just to put it in context, I mean, we are— Spending and spending and spending and cuts spending cuts in washington in recent years have meant Slowing increases or stopping increases. That's the definition of cuts. There hasn't been this massive rollback in any administration Republican or Democrat
3: And keep in mind where these cuts if you really wanted to make a difference to the fiscal bottom line would have to come If you're dealing with the 12 annual spending bills, you would have to cut the Pentagon Uh, about uh, 53, 54% of all federal spending on what we call the discretionary side, this is the part that Congress controls, goes directly to the Pentagon. Well, who's loath to cut that? A lot of Republicans. Although there's a few more now that want to cut some things from the Pentagon than they used to be. okay, so that would be your biggest place. But if you really want to cut spending and make a difference in the overall fiscal bottom line, you don't do it on these 12 appropriations bills. Why? Because that only makes up about, uh, you know, including the Pentagon, about 30 percent. Give or take of all federal spending, only about 15 percent. If you take out the, the the Pentagon, so where you have to make those differences are on entitlements, which Congress continually, year after year after year, refuses to touch. Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and increasingly service on the debt. That's most of the federal spending, and they are loath to touch that. And they can talk about cutting on the discretionary side in these bills all they want, but it's never going to make much of a difference, frankly.
1: Right. Yeah. It's like a good- Teaspoon in the ocean, in the uh, big picture, Leslie. You know now both parties are committed. You had the president at the State of the Union address saying they're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare, and Republicans stood up and applauded, and everybody's in to that. We're not going to touch it, which really is untenable in the long term. You had Simpson Bowles, which was really a the last time there was a possible plan that had bipartisan support. And President Obama kind of gave that the Heisman Award um, and, and didn't get it through because he was working with John Boehner at the time. Uh, so we haven't really done it in the big picture, and it doesn't look like we're any closer to doing it, dealing with debt and deficit.
0: No, uh, we're not. I, I would agree with what Chad said and you said, you know, when you talk about the the teaspoon, you know, versus the platter, Um, look, right now there are realities and it, and whether you're a democrat or a republican your is getting older and older and older right baby boomers especially uh we have you know people who are senior citizens who you know partake of social security and and medicare um you know because of their age in the golden years are becoming the the majority of the population in our country so they're becoming the majority of the constituents in the votership of both parties so you, you know you don't want to you don't want to cut off a huge uh, voter base democrats and republicans you know don't want to do that um and and this is not just a problem for you know democrats and republicans within the house but you know if you look back at 2015 with kevin mccarthy right he had to risk a shutdown a risk the gavel. This is the same course that he is on now. And then you have, like you said, you, you know, you have the House Freedom Caucus that are making requests some people would say, demands others would say that are just not going to happen and they're just not realistic. So, yeah, Republicans look like, hey, vote for us. You know, we've got our hatchet out. And also, when you look at Americans, majority of Americans don't want to hatch it to these specific things that are viewed as essential and not just those who are older, but people like me um, who are getting older <laughs> and who don't want to lose what, you know, they're going to get. It's bad enough. Now, anybody who gets a piece of paper says, well, if you retire at, you know, 65, you get this. But if you hang on till 70, you'll get that. Um, yeah. So, I, yeah, I don't think that we're going to see it perhaps even in our lifetime, um, you know, really be cut up in the way that would make a significant difference uh, fiscally or financially. Panel, we'll hold it right there.
2: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.
1: But Byron, there are, you know, deficit debt hawks who, You know, welcome that discussion on the campaign trail. Really, it's only Vice President Mike Pence who's talking about it, saying if you have white hair or gray hair like me, you have nothing to worry about. It's the young kids that we're going to retool this program and we're going to change it and save it for them. But you don't have to worry about it if you're older. And what I think people forget is that we're only three presidential cycles away from a Republican candidate for president and vice president. Campaigning in front of a debt clock every time they stop someplace (laughs) Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan stood in front of a giant debt clock Well, it was Donald Trump who really changed that dynamic who said I don't want to see commercials of pushing an old lady over the cliff um, as as the one with Paul Ryan did and So it changed the whole perspective and now we're nowhere closer to dealing with this
2: Yeah, this is a chronic uh, problem inside the Republican Party, and it's been a huge change. What you were saying is, in fact, a a huge change in the party, because you used to have a party uh, that was basically dominated by what you would call Ryanism, which is Paul Ryan's uh, belief, shared by everybody else who knows anything about it, that uh, the big entitlement programs, most importantly Medicare, um, uh, unless they are reformed, are going to eat the entire United States budget by, I don't know, 2040, 2050, somewhere around there, certainly until the baby boomers die. Um, and that uh, without reforms, everybody uh, uh, ben- benefits are going to have to be cut for everybody. And this was just actually believed. I mean, Ron DeSantis believed it when he was in the House. Uh, and it, it was never really an electoral winner. It was never an electoral winner because reforming these programs basically meant reducing some of the benefits. And, and Trump you saw that. Out, you know, huh?
1: And Trump saw that.
2: And Trump saw that, and he said, well, I'm not going to campaign. Uh, I'm not going to go out and say, elect me, and I'll reduce your Medicare benefits. Uh, so Trump uh, won, and that changed sort of everything. Uh, and now it's very hard for the party to go back to the Ryan position, even though the problems that Ryan was talking about are still there, except we're now 10 years closer uh, to uh, defaulting in Medicare and Social Security.
1: But Byron, let me ask you this, if there was a second Trump administration, do you think that there would be this evolution, you're no longer campaigning for office, that suddenly you're going to do something to tackle the deficit and debt?
2: No. (laughs) <laughs> I, th- I think a President Trump—look, you, you know how President Trump does things. I mean, he'll get an idea, and he'll go test it in front of the crowd, right? And if he gets a lot of applause, then he'll start using it in the speech, you know? And if, if it falls flat, he throws it out. Um, it's never going to be popular uh, to say we got to, quote, reform Social Security and Medicare. Uh, and I, I believe that a President Trump worried to, worried to have a second term uh, would not take the lead in something like that.
1: Yeah, there was that opportunity, Chad, back at Simpson bowls and and uh, it was missed. Let me turn topics. And speaking of the campaign, <clears throat> obviously you have Florida Governor DeSantis now coming off the campaign trail, dealing with this uh, disaster to be in Hurricane Adalia, Adalia um, that's heading to the Gulf Coast. It is an interesting moment for for candidates uh, dealing with something this big in a state that's obviously faced it before. Should he do well in the response and the emergency response and the state does well in recovery, you might think that he gets, you know, some additional bump in how the people look at him as a possible president.
3: Better be careful about who he hugs. I mean, yes, Chris that's Christie right. learned this after, you know, the storm that came up through the Northeast, uh, you know, a few years ago. And of course, uh, President Obama uh, came and, and they hugged and they still hold that against Chris Christie, uh, you know, even today. So, yes. Uh, he will be judged on this, but sometimes people don't remember this as much. It, it depends if there is some moment that resonates for some reason or, uh, you know, Chris, uh, I should say, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis has, has tried to you know talk about, you know, the pandemic and, and so on and so forth. Those things have not yet stood out to the degree that he can measure up with uh, with former President Trump. And so if for some reason this resonates, then then there you have it. I mean, there was this moment and this was not looking directly at another presidential election. But in 2006, of course, there was a lot of attrition with the support of uh, former President Bush. Uh, You know, the war in Iraq was starting to wear on voters. And then you had right about this same time of year. What do I always say, Brett? Beware the Ides of August. Late August, you had Hurricane Katrina. And when you talk about uh, what finally kind of put the nail in the coffin for Republicans going into the midterms in 2006, it was Hurricane Katrina. And the Bush administration did not look like it handled it well. And even It was though spun, Bush was though,
1: not Chad. Spun, it really was. I covered the White House then, and, yeah. you know, it was really amazing how the story was spun. It was really state and local officials that kind of dropped a lot of balls. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that President Bush was caught saying, you're doing a great job, Brownie, and that became yeah. the narrative.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is where maybe something does catch on in a positive sense for Ron DeSantis uh, or, or, or somebody else. Uh, you know, and again, you, know, you gotta see how, how bad uh, you know, things go in Florida. Here's the other thing, and I talked about this a little bit going into the midterms last year when we had the other storm move through. Uh, let's see how bad the damage is And if you have people who are displaced, does this start to impact where they are living and voting? Now, we're you know, pretty far ahead of, of uh, the 2024 balloting here. Last year, you, know, you had this storm in September, and it wasn't too long before uh, the midterms. And there was a question right. about whether or not that was going to affect either who showed up or where they voted. And if you're starting to change voting constituencies, and if your house has been obliterated by a hurricane, probably the last thing you're worried about is, is going to vote. So those types of things might have an impact. We don't know. That's something to kind of look at the, at the long-term radar there.
1: Last thing, Leslie, this is the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina this week. And, uh, you know, you look back at that and then you look to what happened in Maui and you wonder why there hasn't been more skepticism or criticism of President Biden and the Biden administration on how they've dealt with that. Uh, you know, it started off. He was at the beach. He didn't comment. There was the no comment thing. And then, you know, he didn't hold a cabinet meeting. He didn't have an all hands on deck. He didn't say, let's send everybody. You know, they started sending officials, but there was a real lack of coordination at the beginning. And now you have all these people who are displaced and all these people are dead or missing. It's It's kind of remarkable, if you think about it, the lack of overall criticism the Biden administration has gotten for this.
0: Well, I think it depends who or what you're listening to, watching, reading. Um, Certainly there's been, uh, you know, criticism. Um, If you listen to the governor of Hawaii And officials on the ground in Maui, they feel that the federal government has been exemplary because the president at first didn't go because he didn't want to get in the way. And certainly that we all know can be, you know, can be problematic when you have such uh, a disaster that has taken place. Um, The the criticism comes more in Maui. And my brother lived in Maui six years. He lives in Oahu Um, He has friends that are still missing. Uh, The criticism comes largely, you know, even if you see most of the people, not of the president, but of decisions that were made locally in Maui. You know, we all know about, you know, the problem with not enough water, which people question when you're an island surrounded by water. We all know about um, not sounding the alarm like they normally do in a tsunami because they didn't want people uh, to go up. That's, you know, the signal when you're on an island like that to get to higher ground because the fire was coming from higher ground. So there's a lot of anger, more so toward uh, local officials, also because FEMA's been doing a, a good job and, and the people that have been there and and not just, you know, from the federal government, from different states like here in California, um, you know, first responders that are assisting over there on that island, um, you know, just have they've been received very well because You know, everybody out there is, you know, looking for any help they can get. And then, of course, you just have to look at the people of Maui themselves who truly are heroes because they are helping each other. They were saving lives before anyone on a local level or a federal level could get to them or uh, could, you know, help them. So I've seen and heard plenty of criticism of the president. I've also seen and heard, uh, you know, plenty of praise from the president. Can I just say quickly about Florida um, in the hurricane? You know. One of the things when Ron DeSantis was going to run, it's like he's elected governor, you know, shortly thereafter, he's running for president. And and that was not liked by some Floridians, you know, who were and continue to be supporters. Um, I think it's a litmus, litmus test more so for him among voters within Florida than throughout the country. Then again, when you constantly say, look what I've done in Florida, those words could come back to bite you if he doesn't handle this well and what happens Uh, you know, God forbid, if there's uh, a a lot, a lot of damage or or carnage. Yeah.
1: On this day, August 29th, 2005, hard to believe 18 years ago, Hurricane Katrina makes landfall near New Orleans. It hit a little bit of Florida before that, but a massive storm. It's a category three. That's what we're looking at in Idalia right now. And that's was sustained winds of 145 miles per hour. Uh, southeast Louisiana killed more than 2,000 people in the aftermath of all that we saw with the canals in New Orleans, um, one of the worst disasters in U.S. history. And we hope nothing like that happens here, and we hope uh, to follow good things to come, hopefully in Maui, although it's been a tough, tough run so far. Uh, panel, thank you so much. Uh, a little bit of history here. August 29, 1936, John McCain was born at a naval air station in Cocosolo, Panama. John McCain would grow up across various naval bases in the United States and the Pacific until his family settled in Northern Virginia. Following in his father's footsteps, John McCain attended the United States Naval Academy, became a decorated pilot. On a bombing mission, October 1967, Lieutenant Commander McCain's plane shot down. He was taken prisoner by Viet Cong forces. He would remain a prisoner of war until his release in March of 1973. John McCain had two presidential runs, 2000-2008. Would go on to serve six terms in the Senate beginning in 1987 until his death in 2018. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com. Wherever you download podcasts, make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Leslie Byron and Chad, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app.